0: I just gave birth to children. I wasn't a mother at all. I wasn't a mother in the context of what mothers are. They give birth to children, and then they are there for the children. They see I wasn't a mother. I was a child myself. It was December time, and um, nobody knew, and I, I just managed to cover up all the time, and nobody knew I was pregnant. After having the baby, my grandmother said, just put the baby here, go back to school. But in the middle of all the disappointment, Um, She still thought, I have to continue with my education. I have to continue with school. And then, again, I got pregnant again. Uh, Which, at that time, then she had just lost hope. And she told me to just go live somewhere. Not at home. I must find another place to go and live because she just cannot deal with this.
1: Social Development Minister Lindiwe Zulu was in high school, a teenage mother who had just found out she was pregnant again and was soon to be thrown out of the only place she called home. She first felt pregnant when she was 15 years old, a child herself as Zulu describes it. There was no sympathy from a grandmother and off she went back to school days after giving birth. But then, she got pregnant again. And as a baby bump started to show beneath her school clothes, her grandmother had enough and kicked her out of the house. So she had to make a plan and stay with a friend. Even with that tough love, the woman who had raised her had instilled in her that education held the key to a better life. Being a dropout was never an option. While a grandmother cared for small children, Zulu set off on a journey for a better life. Zulu only met her daughters when they were teenagers. Tough as nails and a firebrand, she developed a thick skin over the years, fighting in Angola during the anti-apartheid struggle. So tough that even those that worked closely with her know she takes no prisoners. Ginger, Rao Faleza for come 2019. Honourable chair, your
0: seat. Honourable chair, Ginger. Honourable we... order. Honourable members, order. It is no secret that that site gave me that name. In this house, I am Honourable Lindiwe Daphne Zulu.
1: My name is Mia Lindiki and in this podcast series I will be looking into the intricate lives of some of South Africa's most resilient politicians, how they carry responsibilities that come with their work while juggling their own personal struggles. Dressed in a camouflage suit and black leather high heel boots, Social Development Minister Lindiwe Zulu is a picture of style and grace. Hello, Minister,
0: Hello. Hello. how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Good, thank you. Good.
1: Hello, good morning. Her effervescent personality fills the room on this chilly day in Johannesburg. In the not too far distance, thick mist envelops rows of houses and the iconic Soweto Towers it 's just after seven o 'clock in the morning, and the hustle and bustle of the township is in full swing. Children walking to school excitedly adults catch public transport nearby. I meet up with the minister at her favorite place, the box shop in Balakazi Street in Orlando. Her eyes glisten as she browses through traditional designer outfits and pick her favorite items. Your daughter, Pindele, is also in, in the fashion. She's usually designing some of your clothes. Is this one of them? Actually, what I'm wearing today is what she
0: she made for me. Lovely. She designed it. I, I said to her I wanted something that had a little bit of camouflage on it. Like, you know, I never get out of the military mentality. But, you know, and this is what she did for me.
1: Born into a poor family in KwaZulu-Natal in 1958... Lindiwe Zulu's upbringing was far from ideal. Her mother left her with a grandmother, a domestic worker from Parktown. Mother and daughter were estranged, and Zulu left the country when she was a little girl, around four or five years old. She can't remember exactly. She was schooled in Swaziland, now Eswatini. It was because of her grandmother's insistence on education that she aimed higher against all
0: odds. You can imagine the burden on a grandmother who firstly um, had to take care of all the grandchildren and then their great-grandchildren that she needed to take care of. And she never had a chance to bring up her own children, by the way, because she worked in Johannesburg and she left um, her children. She would give birth to the children and then she would take them back to her own mother because she had to work in Johannesburg as a domestic worker. Uh, But the good thing is that she had a vision for this education thing, that she would do anything. My grandmother was a very strong uh, woman who wanted all her children, plus her grandchildren, to be educated. She did work hard to get her own children educated, all of them where she is, yeah
1: do you see a lot of your mother or your grandmother in your own character and you know the way you tackle life would you say that you know
0: i see my grandmother very much so i even see my grandmother in my own children my mm-hmm. two daughters because i think my grandmother's way of teaching us and making us to be strong people who have to take care of themselves. Imagine if my grandmother had to live on, had to collect pension. There's just no way that she would have been able to do all the things that she did for us because that money wouldn't have covered. I grew. I was brought up by somebody that didn't have a government to go to, that didn't have a bank to go to, that didn't, didn't go to some agency to go and get money. I just cannot sometimes fathom how she managed all that. It's it, it just mind-blowing to think that my grandmother had eight children in the home, eight.
1: Sure. With barely any father figure in her life, Zulu's own father had died when she was just 11 years old. Her grandfather spent most of his life in factories and hostels he made several sacrifices to ensure she and his seven siblings and cousins were on course for a brighter future.
0: My grandfather was not one that spoke a lot. He was a very quiet uh, gentleman, but also he would tell us about the struggle and the life that was a hard life living in hostels. All his life, since he left uh, KZN to come to Johannesburg to work, he didn't have any home either than a hostel. So he was moving from one hostel to the other. By the time we got him out of the hostel, he came to live with me um, in Sainting. Imagine that. He came to live with me because um, his wife, my grandmother, used to be a domestic worker in Parktown. So those areas were areas which they knew, but were areas where they used to walk with fear because they had to have their passbook at all times. My grandfather used to be in Johannesburg. We used to see him only twice a year. We saw him beginning of the year, end of the year, uh, when they closed the factories uh, in December. So 365 days a year, the person that lived with us, that made sure there was food on the table, was my grandmother. We had a garden, um, and she taught us, you you wouldn't be lazy around my grandmother, she would beat you up for not doing anything. So when I look at all my brothers and sisters and I see how they are standing on their own two feet and they do things for themselves today, it's all because we're brought up by a grandmother that said it is possible.
1: Sadly, Zulu's anchor, her pillar of strength and central figure in her life, her grandmother died in 1996. By that time, Zulu was already in a leadership role in the Gauteng legislature her grandmother got to see the success that came from hard work and sacrifice. But Zulu wishes she'd shown her grandparents more appreciation.
0: Well, for grandmothers of the time, we haven't really thanked them, in my view. Because what I'm telling you here now, as Lindy Zulu, I'm replicated in thousands of other young girls at the time. Who found themselves in that space of getting pregnant? Worst of all, you get pregnant, and the person who made you pregnant is not there. Couldn't be bothered, you know. Um, the parents might be bothered a little bit, but the burden is not on them because you are you are on your mother's. You are, I mean, for me, I was with my grandmother, and my grandmother and my grandfather are the ones that carried the burden, including my aunt. Those are the people that carried the burden. Those are the people that poured the love onto uh, my children. I was to do that way later in life, and I I can't reverse it. But I I then say, thank God I had a grandmother like my grandmother. Thank God I had my grandfather like my grandfather. Thank God I had a family that was very close-knit. My second brother, also joined the Liberation Struggle, but joined the PAC. And he came back home before I I returned, and he went and lived in Swaziland a little while. So he took responsibility um, and took care of my children and lived with my children a little while until I, I came back.
1: Still determined to make them proud, and as part of a collective of freedom fighters on quest to take on the apartheid government, Zulu called many places her home, while continuing to arm herself with education beyond the borders of South Africa. Swaziland, Tanzania, Angola, and Russia, to name a few.
0: When I came back from exile, um, that's the time that I realized, oh, I'm a mother. Oh, this is what motherhood is. And that's when I can say I started really giving uh, my children life as a mother. Earlier than before then, I didn't. So when did you start building that relationship again? I, I met my daughters when they were fourteen and thirteen, or fifteen and thirteen. I met them <clears throat> the first time when I came back um, uh, to South Africa in 1991, having left in 1979. Um, so I only came back then, and that was the first time that I I I, I came across them. They were they were teenagers already. And they were confused also about this mother who had left them now, who is now back. In fact, I think my my older daughter hasn't gone over it even today. My younger daughter is, is was over it a long time ago, and I think she understood more because my grandmother used to explain to them why I had left, but the why I had left was mixed messages for my grandchildren because one time they would be told your mom went to join the ANC and is in the struggle on the other hand no your mom ran away with some men which wasn't the truth I didn't run away with no man I deliberately decided to join the liberation struggle so with my children then they were they had this mixed feeling but it's after a whole lot of time that they appreciated why i had left because they were now living in a free south africa now they could go to any school that they wanted to and i was working um, and their father was there he had never done anything for them and um, i took them to visit their their father's home and their 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 grandmother because i felt like i had them when i was young I didn't know what was all this happening, but I was back now and I think I thought they deserved knowing the other side, knowing um, the father's side. So I took them there and they visited, but nothing came out of it until their father passed on, unfortunately. And And that's why I say my older daughter really never recovered from this because when i went to introduce them on the side of their father also they she was the one that wanted to have an attachment with the dead but the dead wasn't there for her mm-hmm. and Noctrina lives in Rustenberg mm-hmm. um, she took a while to come to South Africa she she remained in Swaziland a while and she also had her first child fortunately for her she had her first child after long after she was 20 mm-hmm. so i took that child and lived with him i live with him to date i did my, my mm-hmm. first grandchild i do live you, with him
1: do you, do you have any regrets in you know in terms of what happened to you when you fell pregnant at a very young age becoming a you know a, a mother you say that you don't consider yourself to be a mother at that time um, do you have any regrets with regards to that? Anything
0: yes, to do yes, I, I, I do because not to have um, you're a mother, but you don't have that maternal mm-hmm. connection to your children is a painful thing. And at the time that you're living it, you're not realizing it. You re- realize way later when you. When you see, I mean like now, I see my, my, my daughters and their children, and I see my son uh, with, uh, with his child. I, I, I could reverse it and, and find myself in the space. My daughters love their children. My daughters take care of their children. My daughters are attached to their children. You, they will not want their children away from them. And that's what I look at, and I think that's what I
1: missed. A turning point came in 1976 when comrades were needed to fight the oppressive government. Zulu stepped up. Not only for her own children, whose lives she had been absent from, but future generations too.
0: When they left South Africa, some went to Botswana, Lesotho and Swaziland. Those who went to Swaziland, there were no refugee camps at the time. So the church used to ask South African families to keep some of them. So we had some of the the, the students that had run out of South Africa staying with us in our home. My grandmother opened um, the home for them, and it's through them that I was able to engage with them more. It's through them that I was also able to appreciate and understand that we wouldn't have grown up where we grew up if it hadn't been for a system that thought we don't belong here, a system that did not think that black people were worth anything other than drawers of water and hewers of wood. And I think my grandparents' decision, especially my grandmother's decision to move from South Africa to Swaziland, gave us the best that we can ever, ever.
1: While many wanted to join Umkonto with Sizwe, the armed wing of the ANC, Zulu opted for the mightier weapon, the pen. With a master's degree in journalism, she went to Angola for two years. And what was it like there, where she fiercely fought for the liberation movement? I struggled to wrap my head around how the woman right in front of me used to handle a firearm with ease. But that was a different time and different circumstances.
0: You wake up in the middle of the night, there's nothing around you, just a bush, tall trees, snakes. Hyenas, all that. You have to wake up and go and stand at the corner uh, 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 almost a kilometer or two kilometers out of your camp because we are guarding, it's what we call uh, uh, you, are, you. are on duty. You stand there for two bloody hours and then you will be relieved after two hours. It's you and the darkness and the hyenas around you. And South Africans, we sit here. Nobody wants to hear that story. Nobody wants to know how did we get here. People think it was just a, 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 a 1994, mm-hmm. then freedom came, Mandela in prison, people go and they go and they on tour, hey they're mm-hmm. going on tour to go and see his cell. Mm-hmm. That's where my pain lies.
1: Well, how tough was it in Angola? For you being a woman, being confronted with these things, it was a man's world we made it
0: our world because it was a and for us you know we didn't look at men women because there's nothing that the men did in angola that i didn't do so we didn't even look at it that way we looked at it from a simple point of view there's a struggle to be carried there's a system to be removed there's a country to be liberated there's freedom that we are yearning for mandela had been in prison uh, all of them who were in prison. And by the way, that's another story which pains me that we don't talk about the other people who were in prison with Mandela. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows about them. And I ask myself why. They all spent <laughs> the same amount of time. And th- that's the time when I feel I-, I admire him for everything that he did. But I tend to hate South Africans who want to forget about the rest of the people that were in prison. Hundreds of our people who are here in Soweto, their stories are not being told. Mm. And that's where, again, I feel, it's like we're we're cooked just in a small pot. Yeah, here's your democracy, don't bother us with the rest of the things. Mm. And we can't. We can't because then it means we will never be able to heal because we're still putting things and covering up things. And why must we do that? Let the stories be told. Let people make their decisions about how they feel about the stories when the stories are being told.
1: Can you tell me one specific story was a
0: turning point in your life? Walking out of Angola when um, uh, the decision or the resolution for Namibia to be free, the decision was that, or the resolution was that we must move out of Angola. Think about it. We had four or five camps, and we had to close down, completely close down, after being there training, and some people, some comrades had been there longer than me, again, I mean, I had a short stint there, it was two years I was there. The night that we had to carry our weapons and carry everything and get out of the camps. The pain, never mind the walk, because we walked kilometers after kilometers in the night. We had to walk and move out because the chances were that if you were going to move out of there, maybe in the day, you still have the UNITA rebels waiting for you somewhere. So we had to walk out in the night. That for me was a turning point that said, come what may, South Africa has to be free. Because this life is not a life. That's the first one. The second one was when we were ambushed by UNITA rebels coming from Luanda, going to our camps, and we lost more than 20 comrades. More than 20 killed at the same time. It's a convoy. It's truck after truck and car after car. And they they poured on us. We had to get off and fight, fight them off. But by the time that was over, I think we had about 26 comrades lost.
1: Where were you at that moment? I mean, just doing what you were trained to do.
0: Yeah. Was there you, don't think,
1: you don't think no. of your comrades who just fell down here next to you?
0: No, I'm thinking of getting the one who's killed my comrades. That's mm-hmm. all there that is for me. The rest really doesn't matter. It's to protect each other, those of us who are still alive, but also go for the ones who have killed our comrades. And it was as simple as that. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't think about it the way people would see it today. We 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 did it because it was a cause that we were prepared to die for. Maybe if I put it that way, it will be understood because we were prepared to die for the freedom of South Africa.
1: So you and had some to, did die. Yeah. Yes. And you had to hold a gun. Kill people. Because that was you had to kill. Of course.
0: Mm-hmm. What else would you do? Why, why else would you pick up mm-hmm. arms? You pick up arms because the other one. You're struggling and you're saying, we want our freedom, and what do they do? They shoot you down. Mm-hmm. The ANC as an organization never, from the time it was formed in 1912, it never used arms. It was only in 1961 when the ANC realized, no man, this thing is not working. You're going out, you're demonstrating, you are killed. You go out, to do that, you are shot at. You go out, you do that, you are taken, you are thrown into prison, you are thrown through windows. And they say, no, you killed yourself, you threw yourself out of the window. So there was no option here. There were there was nothing else to do but to say, okay, if you guys are going to be fighting us this way, we are also just as capable of getting back to you. So that's how the struggle, the armed struggle started. And by 1976, when all Um, the the numbers that flocked out of South Africa, it just increased the number of people who were in the camps to go and train and fight. But we were prepared to come back and fight and kill if need be, because we were also being
1: I'm acutely aware of my naivety and perhaps a level of sheer ignorance as she explains why she had to defend herself when she found herself in harm's way. Throughout this vivid recollection, she remains calm, stoic, and patient. Do you still have nightmares thinking about that time, or is it something that you completely blocked out? No, I
0: don't don't have nightmares at all. And I think the reason why I don't have the nightmares is because there was a cause for doing that. I think people who have nightmares are people who go out and kill other people for other reasons. Then you're going to have the nightmares. I don't have. Probably some of my comrades that came inside the country and were involved in operations might say something different because I never was in a situation where I had to be in a battle like the way some of my comrades did. I'm 100% sure some of them, they're still suffering from that. As a society, I don't think we're giving enough attention to those comrades. And it doesn't matter for me, it's not about ANC comrades. There were PAC comrades, there are ANC comrades, there are black consciousness uh, comrades, there are people who were brutalized one way or the other. But you know what, South Africa, we're just moving on with our life. Mm. Maybe there will be a generation that will wake up to the reality of realizing how much sacrifice was made.
1: Was there ever a moment where you thought, today might be the day that I'm going to die? No. Because any time there was
0: an opportunity, I told myself I'm going to fight. I wasn't prepared to die. I wasn't going to allow. I mean, in the camps, remember that I I told you earlier on that UNITA rebels used to want to come into our camps and we had to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. At no moment did did I say, oh, maybe now I'm going to die. No, no, no. Every moment, every minute, every time, mine was, Whatever happens, I'm gonna fight. That's all I knew was that I'm going to fight. And I think that spirit of thinking like that, it never it never put me in a point of weakness. I always wanted to fight.
1: But there are lighter moments too, famously called comrade ginger by those who sought to mark the colour of her hair. She now owns it and has no qualms with the reference. Lindiwe Zulu had been typecast by many as a hard person. But there are many layers to this political heavyweight. She's complex, charismatic, insightful, and even vulnerable. She poses for a quick photo after our interview before stopping to buy a few storybooks for her grandchildren. As she walks out into the bright morning sunshine, there's distinct chatter in the room. Her presence cannot be ignored. Thanks for joining me. Listen out for my other podcasts in this series where I sit down with Ministers Angie Motsecha, Stella Debeni-Abrams and Barbara Creasy.
0: You've been listening to an EWN podcast written by Mia Lindikey, produced by Peter Thron, subbed by Lebochang Ntate and Charlotte Kilbane.